This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, it wasn't a blue moon last Sunday night. It was instead, I would say rather comically, called the Super Blood Wolf Moon Eclipse. Now, we think lunar eclipses are pretty cool, no matter how you name them. But people do get a little carried away with the nomenclature. It was so-called supermoon because the moon was fairly close to perigee. In other words, it was full and as close in its orbit as it usually gets. Although these supermoons, they make a big deal about how this is the closest moon we're going to have in the next, you know, 20 years or whatever. And then, you know, three months later, they're calling it a supermoon again. Well, this one isn't quite as super as the last one, but it's still pretty super. They call them blood moons because the surface of the moon does take on a ruddy appearance. That's because it's being illuminated only by that circle of light around the planet, which is the sun being bent through the Earth's atmosphere, which at sunset you know, gives you a red sun. Although this varies quite a bit. I've seen lunar eclipses that were really dark. I mean, they almost disappeared. Um, our Los Angeles correspondent <laughs> called me in the middle of the eclipse to ask about uh, the moon turning turquoise. He'd read somewhere that sometimes it turns turquoise. I agree, this certainly was possible, but I suspect it probably would involve a large ingestion of peyote before <laughs> the moon looked that way to you. But there is an expression, once in a blue moon, that I think originally meant the moon actually did look blue. Not not necessarily during an eclipse, but it, it just it looked blue because of forest fires, I understand, can sometimes give that appearance. And continuing on the subject of the moon, I don't know why this happened, but somewhere along the line they decided that if you got two full moons in the same month, they were going to call the second one a blue moon. Now, keep in mind, some months are 31 days, some are 30 days, Februarys are 28 or 29, and the moon takes... 29 days to go around planet Earth. That can't be the reason it's called once in a blue moon, because blue moons, by that definition, happen all the time. I don't know. At any rate, no matter what you call a lunar eclipse, it's a rather spectacular event. This one was in danger of being rained out across most of Northern California. In fact, I sent out text messages to a great number of friends who wrote back, it's raining. To which I would add, it was raining where I was looking up at the moon as well, but it was raining intermittently, there were holes in the clouds, and I was able to see, rather satisfactory, a large portion of this event. So there's a lesson, dear listener. Don't give up just because it's raining. Go out and take a look. You know, it's not always a complete, unbroken layer of clouds above you. I'm going on a bit about this, I guess, but I was so tickled by one particular aspect of this lunar eclipse that I have to share, which was that after texting a friend uh, suggesting that uh, he go out and take a look, he called me to say, oh yes, he and his girlfriend were out looking at it now. They were out on a deck. Now the deck in question was located in Marin County, so it will probably not come as a shock to listeners to, to learn that an observer on the scene was viewing events through the prism, I guess you'd say, of astrology. She was enjoying the spectacle as we all were, 
mentioned that a friend of hers had suggested she go out and take a look at this eclipse, which was going to take place in Leo, because the full moon this month was allegedly in Leo. Now, the problem with this was that right above the moon were two bright stars. They were, in fact, Castor and Pollux, the brightest stars in Gemini. The moon was below it, one constellation down, which should mean to astronomer and astrologer alike that the moon was, in fact, in Cancer. I'm not sure at this point that Leo was even yet poking up above the East Bay Hills. This prompted me to remark somewhat humorously that, well, I'm sure, according to astrologic charts, that this full moon was in Leo, because these charts are about 2,000 years off. They were, no doubt, accurate when Julius Caesar was a young man, but good old Julie's long gone, and the skies have shifted just a bit. All this doesn't really amount to a hill of beans, I suppose, in the grand scheme of things, but it did strike me that if you're going to base decisions on information you possess, and this would apply in any field you choose, then it will inevitably be good if the data upon which you're basing a decision is valid. And this, of course, got me thinking about the subject of fake news and Fox News, which I guess are the same thing. And uh, how I think these days it's clearer than ever that people are going to believe what they prefer to believe. We did quote someone, and I don't remember who said it, and I don't think I can get the quote exactly right, but it was to the effect that the facts, while interesting, are usually irrelevant. Something I've always just hoped was wrong. But when it comes to political opinions, well, I don't know. Or, for that matter, religious opinions. It's hard to say. It is a good rule of thumb during family gatherings to avoid talking about both politics and religion. To which I would add, I hope all of you got through this last holiday season without being stuck in that quagmire. And having just mentioned the subject of religious beliefs, I think I need to cite one of the most bizarre paragraphs I've encountered in, I don't know, years. I was watching on the BBC channel a couple days back a a piece by David Attenborough on the oceans. It was um, as excellent as all of those planet Earth programs have been. I was quite struck by the fact that this description of the deep sea, the basically large plains of muck found in the deep sea represent basically 75%, three-fourths of the bottom of the ocean. Since the ocean is three-fourths of planet Earth, that means that aliens sticking a probe into planet Earth from outer space would hit that half the time. Anyway, that could be the subject for a whole show one day. But this got me basically cross-referencing a bunch of things about life in the deep sea and it was kind of fun noodling around it is it is a marvel that we can hyperlink one item to another and thus learn things very quickly in the modern era i love that uh and as i was enjoying this i I stumbled on one of these hyperlinks into the subject of copepods which are believed to be the largest biomass of any animal on earth some think so anyway copepods are little Teensy, weensy crustaceans. Crustaceans are more familiar to us in the form of, say, lobsters and crabs. 
they vary from being basically microscopic in size to, to those which you could just make out with the naked eye. And so we have this paragraph that I found very entertaining from Wikipedia. And I quote, Copepods are sometimes found in public main water supplies, especially systems where the water is not filtered, such as New York City, Boston, and San Francisco. This is usually not a problem in treated water supplies. In some tropical countries, such as Peru and Bangladesh, a correlation has been found between copepods' presence and cholera in untreated waters, because the cholera bacteria attach to the surface of planktonic animals. Copepods have been used successfully in Vietnam to control disease-bearing mosquitoes, such as the type that transmit dengue fever. The copepods can be added to water storage containers where the mosquitoes breed. Copepods can survive for periods of months in the containers if the containers are not completely drained by their users. They attack, kill, and eat the younger first and second instar larvae of the mosquitoes. And the presence of copepods in the New York City water supply system has caused problems for some Jewish people who observe kashrut. Copepods being crustaceans are not kosher, nor are they small enough to be ignored as non-food microscopic organisms since some specimens can be seen with the naked eye. When a group of rabbis in Brooklyn, New York, discovered the copepods in the summer of 2004, they triggered such enormous debate in rabbinic circles that some observant Jews felt compelled to buy and install filters for their water. The water was ruled kosher by Posek Yisrael Belsky. I guess for my own part, I find it astonishing that people would actually wonder whether the creator of the universe having laid down a rule that you're not allowed to eat crustaceans, would thereafter hold you accountable if you accidentally ingested some? I think not, based on my concept of how a creator of the universe would probably think. But as they taught me in catechism many decades ago, he does work in strange and mysterious ways, so who knows? And in another story where in religious scholarship plays a small role, we have this item... According to the Washington Post, the Library of Congress has acquired an 1800s Arabic slave memoir. A few months back on this program, we discussed the intriguing book Barracoon, which told the tale of probably the last slave ship that came to America just before the Civil War and the man who was taken into custody in Africa and lived out the rest of his life in the South. His tale was especially compelling because we have so few first-hand accounts of what it meant to be taken into slavery. But yet there is another, the one we're referring to. The article about him notes that as a slave, he was called Moro or Uncle Moro. According to the article about him, they described him as a dignified man in his 60s, small in stature, described as unfit for hard work, had been enslaved for almost a quarter century. He spoke limited English, but his real name was Omar Ibn Said. He had been a Muslim scholar in West Africa where he was abducted in 1807. In 1831, when a few enslaved people in the U.S. could read or write, he wrote what is thought to be the only surviving slave narrative of its its kind in Arabic. That's what the Library of Congress announced last week it had acquired from a collector. Need to know more about this story. It sounds quite interesting. And in a much more contemporary story related to, I guess you'd say civil rights, perhaps human rights. We have the fact that this week a joint statement was issued on the JFK 
Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Robert Kennedy assassinations and ongoing cover-ups. This effort was initiated by David Talbot, the founder of Salon.com, someone we're proud to say has been on this program on three separate occasions. The list of people who have signed on to this document is rather impressive. David Talbot is joined by Dr. Cyril Wecht, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., filmmaker Oliver Stone, comedian and activist Mort Saul, filmmaker Rob Reiner, Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, activist Abby Rockefeller, the host of WhoWhatWhy.com, Russ Baker, investigator journalist Jefferson Morley, Daniel Ellsberg, and many, many others. I'm pleased to note that of the 66 signatories on the statement issued earlier this week, Radio Parallax has had on an even dozen. We were planning in the month or so to come to have both Lisa Pease and James Eugenio on this program. They're always good for talking about politically active things, maybe in this case politically radioactive things. I hope we can get Lisa and Jim on to talk about that. Lisa has a new book about the RFK assassination. And uh, Jerry Polakoff, one of the signatories to this, is probably considered the media expert on at least the JFK case, and we may have Jerry back on as well. I'm not going to read the entire 10-point statement. We'll probably do that in a future installment of this program, but I would like to excerpt from it. Statement number one is, as the House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded in 1979, President John F. Kennedy was probably killed as the result of a conspiracy. Two, in the four decades since this congressional finding, a massive amount of evidence compiled by journalists, historians, and independent researchers confirms this conclusion. This growing body of evidence strongly indicates that the conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy was organized at high levels of the U.S. power structure and was implemented by top elements of the U.S. national security apparatus using, among others, figures in the criminal underworld to help carry out the crime and cover-up. Point three is that this stunning conclusion was also reached by the president's own brother, Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, who himself was assassinated in 1968 while running for president, after telling close aides that he intended to reopen the investigation into his brother's murder if he won the election. Point six is that the official investigation of the JFK assassination immediately fell under the control of U.S. security agencies ensuring a cover-up. The Warren Commission was dominated by former CIA Director Alan Dulles and other officials with strong ties to the CIA and FBI. Point seven is that the corporate media, with its own myriad connections to the national security establishment, aided the cover-up with its rush to embrace the Warren Report and to scorn any journalists or researchers who raised questions about the official story. Point nine is that the CIA continues to obstruct evidence about the JFK assassination, routinely blocking legitimate freedom of information requests, and defying the JFK Records Collection Act of 1992, preventing the release of thousands of government documents as required by law. The final point is that the JFK assassination was just one of four major political murders that traumatized America. JFK, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and RFK were each, in his own unique way, attempting to turn the U.S. away from war toward disarmament and peace, away from domestic violence and division toward civil amity and justice. 
Their killings were together a savage, concerted assault on American democracy, and the tragic consequences of these assassinations still haunt our nation. Pretty strong words. The signatories are calling for a commission to be set up, such as was set up in South Africa at the end of apartheid, to try and determine what wrongdoings had taken place and to try to move the country forward in a more unified way. I have to confess, I am not overly optimistic that this statement and this effort is going to bear fruit, but I certainly hope that it does. As it happens, we're pretty well connected with a lot of the participants in this and expect to bring their opinions to you in the future. Yes, I certainly hope good can come of this, but but sometimes one is nearly in despair that we as individuals can really make a difference. Well, let's move into something that we all hope we can make a difference in that is considerably more mundane, and that would be the subject of recycling. The Sierra Club recently sent me an invitation to uh, re-up my membership, and as many charities often do, they included a few freebies to (laughs) induce me to... uh, to write him a check. One page was titled, Easy Tips for a Greener Home. Some of these, I think, are pretty good pieces of advice, such as don't heat an empty house. During winter, turn down your thermostat to 68 when you're home and 55 at night, and if you're away. Of course, when you do this, you may have to face some complaints from friends of yours that your house is too damn cold. Take it from me on this one. You know, and things like, you know, only running your clothes washer or dishwasher when you have a full load. That makes sense. The list also had an item that said switch to chemical-free cleaning products, and I really wasn't sure what they meant by that. What's chemical-free? Distilled water? They also suggested you stop using your toxin-loaded dryer sheets, and I confess I was unaware that my dryer sheets were toxin-loaded. Research will continue. And, you know, I'm not trying to mock the Sierra Club's effort in this department, although it may seem like it. It's hard for me to find fault with advice like use cloth napkins instead of paper napkins at dinner or clean your refrigerator coils, vacuum out the dust, and wipe them with damp cloth, sure. But I also suggest you buy your dog a canvas leash instead of nylon. Is that really going to save the world? It also suggests you buy a new (laughs) houseplant, to which I'd reply, what's wrong with my old houseplant? But what really got me was their suggestion that we should recycle. Because they said, if you're not sure what is recyclable, check out our recycle chart. And this, for me, held some surprises. When it comes to metals, I think we all know that you can put in aluminum cans, you can put in tin and steel cans, you can put in metal food trays, you can put in aerosol cans, provided they're empty, and of course you can put in the metal lids from jars, cans, and bottles. But did you know that in the not recycle department we have pie pans coat hangers aluminum foil aluminum foil i did not know that did you dear listener you do now anyway when it comes to glass things you can recycle include glass food and beverage containers wine bottles and uh, glass jars but not window glass or mirrors not fluorescent bulbs or incandescent bulbs Those should go in the garbage. Of course, here at Radio Parallax, we believe that compact fluorescent bulbs should go into the garbage before you try to use them. Because they are, for the most part, a waste of time. Here's probably the most important thing at all. When it comes to recycling plastics, plastic bags get caught in the equipment used for recycling. Never recycle plastic bags. You're supposed to recycle your bags at the local grocery store. 
You're also not supposed to recycle plastic wrap, plastic bottle tops. Yes, you can recycle a plastic bottle, but apparently nobody wants the cap. They don't want you to try and recycle styrofoam. Yeah, that goes in the garbage. Food containers, garbage. Garden plastics, plastic flower pots, garbage. Yogurt and margarine tubs, garbage. Not recyclable. Moving on to paper. Well, we all know you can recycle milk cartons, newspapers and its inserts, magazines, junk mail. And here's one I like. Soft cover books. Well, I suppose if you've got a hard... I suppose if you've got a paperback copy of The Art of the Deal, you can just toss it. I don't know. But here's the, the terrible part. Not recyclable items among paper include waxy cardboard, pizza boxes, towel or tissue rolls, plastic wrap from newspapers, photos, and packing material. Packing material is not much of a surprise, but my God. You can't recycle your pizza box? Well, now you know. I'm sure that some of you have a strong opinion about this matter of what to recycle and what not to recycle, and hope you'll drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. And while you're at it, let us know whether it does any good to recycle at all, because what we're hearing is that uh, with the Chinese deciding they don't want our recyclable material, um, it's all going to the landfill anyway. We hope that's not true, but investigation must continue, because we don't know. Now, as we go to press, as it were... We're not sure what's going to happen regarding the Donald's State of the Union address. Nancy Pelosi is invoking the, I think, unofficial rule that Congress has to invite the chief executive over to address the joint session of Congress for his State of the Union address. And apparently she's suggesting that he get the government restarted before he comes to bloviate. I must confess we're finding this rather amusing. Oh, it's not very amusing to contemplate the fact that after having the government partially shut down for a month, the U.S. economy is apparently down by about, some say, I don't know, a trillion dollars. I have no idea whether that's any more accurate than the other things that economists say, but maybe it's true. I think it's quite fair to demand that he uh, lay off if he wants to talk to the nation, get all that free air time. Apparently last weekend he... uh, he announced somewhere that, uh, you know, that he was making an offer on the wall that kind of, I guess, got ignored. I don't know. Did you see any coverage of this? I, I missed it somehow. Something I wish I'd missed, but unfortunately uh, did not, and I think un- even more unfortunately must address, is the fact that uh, under Donald Trump, the Pentagon is currently planning an expansion of its missile defense system. We've talked about this so many times in this program, going back to Ronald Reagan's ill-founded decision back in 1983 to come up with his largely fanciful uh, system of space-based and otherwise-based systems that would shoot down missiles before they could land and blow up. This harebrained idea was put to the president, who was not noted for his scientific literacy, by Dr. Strangelove himself, Dr. Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb. Yes, Teller had quite a history of coming up with great ideas. Not just the hydrogen bomb. He managed to get America launched on, uh, I don't know, spending hundreds of billions, and I'm sure by now maybe a trillion dollars, on a system that has never been proven to work, a system that would shoot down missiles. Well, with Trump in the White House, who is certainly no more scientifically literate than Ronald Reagan, the Pentagon's being given a free hand. Writing about this in the Washington Post, 
Paul Stone said, The Trump administration is seeking to expand the scope and sophistication of America's missile defenses on a scale not seen since President Ronald Reagan's Star Wars initiative. In a new strategy that President Trump plans to roll out personally Thursday, that I guess is going to be today, alongside military leaders at the Pentagon. Known as the Missile Defense Review, the document that Trump will unveil marks the first official update to America's missile defense doctrine in nine years. It comes as North Korea and Iran make advances in ballistic missile production and Russia and China press forward with sophisticated cruise missiles, short-range ballistic missiles, and hypersonic glide vehicles. The Trump administration's response is to call for urgent new investments in missile defense technology across the board, despite the fact that to date none of this technology has been shown to actually work. And while they're at it, the Pentagon wants to put a constellation of sensors above the Earth orbiting us that can track missiles as they launch, and they're recommending a study of weapons that can shoot down missiles from space. This, of course, is in direct abrogation of the treaty signed between the U.S. and Russia that date backs, I think, to the Nixon era. Under the last evil administration of Bush and Cheney, we decided that, you know, atomic weapons up in space, maybe that was a pretty good idea. The Post article notes that this is being described as a cost-effective way to destroy missiles shortly after their launch in what is known as the boost phase. I'm not sure what they mean in this case by cost-effective. And of course, even though Donald Trump is in love with Kim Jong-un of North Korea, they keep citing North Korea as a possible threat to the United States, which causes us at Radio Parallax to wish to point out that if the Soviet Union, which had rough parity with the U.S., managed to resist the notion that might be wise to launch a bunch of atomic bombs and attack us because they would then be turned into a radioactive smoking heap themselves. It seems to us pretty likely that Kim Jong-un is going to resist any temptation to do something similar, particularly since his missiles so far have seemed incapable of reaching much past Japan. There's one sentence in the article that really disturbed me. Lampooned during the Reagan years for its high price tag and questionable effectiveness, missile defense now enjoys far broader support in Congress, particularly since North Korea tested its first intercontinental ballistic missile in 2017. Here's the deal. It's all about money. It's all about spending large sums of money to defense contractors. It's not about making you and me any safer. Although I do want to note that in the field of astronomy, Adaptive optics came out of the whole SDI thing, and this has revolutionized how we can see out into deep space. So it's not all hogwash. It's just mostly hogwash. All right, we got to take a break and come back for our second segment. Since this was roundly uh, criticized as being called the Star Wars system of Ronald Reagan, we should go out with something, I think, Mr. Miller, from John Williams. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. 